trade secrets right, are, are easy to protect when your trade secrets are the tooling and the fixtures and the machinery that are in your factory. And the only way to get into your factory is to get a job there or, or you know, steal the key. And by the way, there's a, there's a, a guard in a gray suit walking around at night when the factory's not running. Um, but, but, you know, trade secrets kind of go out the window when, when your, uh, your business is a CAD file. And um, all you really need to know is, you know, where's the file and what is the printer that prints it? Uh, does that does that immediately uh, eliminate all competitive advantage for some category of manufacturing? You better hope not. Welcome to Tough Tech Today with Mayan and Miller. This is the premier show featuring trailblazers who are building technologies today to solve tomorrow's toughest challenges. Welcome to Tough Tech Today uh, with Mayan and Miller. Today we have a special guest. This is Matt. Goldstein, Managing Director of M12, Microsoft's Venture Fund. Matt has uh, an awesome background. We're going to be diving into it, but to put it short, um, he invests in optimism um, and in specific types of investments being on the, the, the levels of other frontier technologies like software services, blockchain, 3D printing, drones. The list goes on and we will be getting into that. But first, welcome, Matt. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. So to, to let's go first into this investing in optimism, because this is a, a great, uh, interesting way to, to put it. Um, and I, I, I empathize completely. So could you elaborate on, on what you mean by that? Um, yeah, I'm a pretty anxious, pessimistic person. And, um, and I love my job uh, because my job is to hang out with people smarter than me. Who are solving important problems and making the world a better place and i get to play some teeny tiny role in helping them be successful and thereby making the world world a better place um i i i, I would be shocked if most vcs didn't end up in the job via sci-fi right through some way shape or form and and you know my particular appetite is for the, the more optimistic variety uh <clears throat> so I, yeah, I, I get to hang out with people who are trying to change the world in, in ways that I find very exciting. And uh, I've summarized that by, uh, in the phrase, investing in optimism. So your, your uh, forte, I say, is one of them, at least, is in cybersecurity. Um, and for most of us on the consumer side, it means like, uh, it means I have to put in like bigger passwords or pass phrases to, to my phone, to my computer, to everything, and then a unique password for everything. Um, sure. and so that can be quite a hassle, an annoyance to at least perceive to be for a lot of folks. Could you, yeah. um, just to level set, uh, on the importance of cybersecurity and why there are investment opportunities in this and why it really matters to sort of, you know, mom and dad in terms of why they should be caring about this frontier work. Yeah, that's, um, that's a really interesting way of asking the question. Um, <clears throat> look, the, the, the gap between the physical and digital world is, is shrinking every day, right? Uh, my, my parents have a safety deposit box that's located. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to tell you where it's located. Um, uh, and I don't know what they have in it, right? Some documents or, or something, right? I don't, I don't have one. I've got, I've got PDFs and they live somewhere. My username? No, I'm not going to tell you that either. Um, <laughs> Almost so, had a so, scoop there. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, so, so this, this gap between physical and digital is, is disappearing. And 
man, this is a really interesting question. You know, humans have been have been uh, building walls and building locks and, and devising weapons uh, to defend themselves and their families and their property uh, since time immemorial. Uh, so it feels cybersecurity feels new, but but it's it's a an obvious and natural extension to our lives becoming digitized. Um, so it's obnoxious. I, I completely agree with you that, that a lot of the steps we have to take is, are, are obnoxious. To me, that is, um, n- nobody, nobody thinks that their, do- their front door lock is obnoxious, right? Um, so it's, it's simply uh, a function of the fact that, that cybersecurity is, is nascent, that these tools are new, uh, that technology is, is changing faster than the physical world. And uh, it, is, it is up to us and it is up to the entrepreneurs and, and technologists who are building new cybersecurity solutions and really, sorry, the people who are building digital solutions to first off make their products more secure and second, the cybersecurity vendors to help them make their products more secure uh, so that it can start to fade into the background. And, and, you know, you wouldn't think of it any more than you would think of your door lock as being obnoxious. Yeah, so... I, you know, your, your focus is on, you know, cybersecurity and, and B2B companies. And have you found that, um, you know, B2B businesses are still kind of getting used to cybersecurity as part of the door lock? I know that, you know, mom and pops, you know, like, you know, me and, and consumers are still really getting up to speed. But what's the current state, um, you know, for enterprises? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it runs the gamut, obviously. Um, uh, some industries, well, let's see, I, I think you could think of it as, as two, different, um, two different axes, right? Some industries uh, inherently care more and some industries inherently care less, right? Financial services inherently cares more because they don't want to lose money and, and be on the hook for it. Um, and then the other axis might be uh, the regulatory axis, right? Uh, are, are, are there specific... Uh, requirements or certifications, SOC 2, for example, that they are required to um, required to achieve, I guess would be the right word, uh, in order to be compliant, in order to be able to offer their solution, or perhaps in order to be able to offer their solution to a specific cu- customer segment, like, like the government. Um, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the worst quadrant to be in is the, is the high requirement to low uh, uh, inherent care Right. Mm-hmm. These are these are, these are the sectors that that you know tend to get hacked, and and you know the hacks have tremendous far-reaching consequences for you and me. You know we have to mm-hmm. go reset passwords and deal with identity theft. Uh, you know I, I don't need to point at any specific uh, hacks in our history for us to think about uh, the personal consequences of an enterprise being hacked. Sure. What industries um, are those that kind of meet that profile? Um. <clears throat> I don't. I don't have a good answer for you. I mean, I think you know certain arcane subsegments of uh, of government. Uh, the OPM hack, for example. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the I can never remember which credit credit bureau it was. What one of one of these oh, like Experian or 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 or, or, or the other one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. They both start with the. Um, <clears throat> You know, le- legacy industries that have not necessarily um, a- adapted to the digi- digitization of every other component of our of our daily lives mm-hmm. uh, would would be another classic example. Okay, and as far as threats go, um, like what what do you see as the biggest threat in cybersecurity? Like, is there a particular 
type of tech or hack or new technology that is really kind of the frontier of cybersecurity? So um, I, I have two answers to that question, and, and I think both of these answers will take us in an interesting direction. Uh, one is the business model, uh, the, the, the business model of attackers, right? In the past, uh, you know, hackers, you think about the Hackers movie with uh, Angelina Jolie way back in the day, right? It was, it was fun. It was interesting. It was curiosity. There was no business model here. Uh, that, that has changed dramatically, and, and surprise, surprise, incentives drive behavior. Uh, so to the extent that... Uh, Hacking is a business, and it's an organized business. In some parts of the world, it's a very organized business with you know call centers and boards of directors and balance sheets. Um, uh, you, you need not be surprised that uh, they get very good and very professionalized. Uh, and so the, the uh, challenge for cybersecurity practitioners and, and uh, software developers is to, uh, well, it's twofold. One, um, make themselves a slightly less appealing target than, than the next guy. Right, uh, you, you don't you don't have to be the fastest person running away from the bear. You just have to be the not be the slowest. <laughs> um, the 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 um, uh, the other the other concern here is the, the fundamentally asymmetric nature of uh, attacker attacky right of, of the cybersecurity landscape or ecosystem. Uh, targets tend to be companies. Companies have websites and LinkedIn profiles. Uh, you know who the people are. Um, uh, you know who their vendors are. Uh, you can go, you as an attacker can go figure out uh, where they keep things. They have to make public filings, right? There, there's a lot of information out there about, about any given target. Um, as the attacker, you know, you're not a nation state. You're, you're a, a, a group of individuals who, who may or may not be in the same building or the same city. Uh, these individuals may or may not even know each other's real identities. Uh, so, so the attackers are are uh, hidden and amorphous and uh, don't operate on any specific uh, timetable or, or schedule. Uh, they can adapt their tactics in ways that that organizations can't. Operating in um, uh, you know in a, in, a, in a public marketplace. Uh, so, so cybersecurity is, is fundamentally asymmetric and. Um, Part of my investment thesis for cybersecurity is to find ways to address that and find ways to, to flip that script a little bit and, and find ways for uh, defensive actors to coordinate uh, and, and take advantage of their, um, their shared scale to start to flip the script and, and uh, come up with uh, a, a unified defense against an amorphous attacker. With this uh, this part, and you've done it it's doing really well, in my opinion, in terms of keeping it from being the the fear mongering that some some folks advocates for cybersecurity have, like that there's that sort of the whole world is out to get my password or something, mm -hmm. which um, you know may or may not be true. The sure. so then it seems like that, that there's also this um, privacy angle that. Yeah, you know sure. the the rule of thumb is like if you don't if you don't want something accessible to people don't put it on the internet but with as we've seen through through the pandemic of uh, that where we're we're either spending like a lot of time in a place with people that we didn't expect to be spending this much time with or sure. the other side where we're spending so much time apart from from loved ones and and, and friends longer than we expected to and so it's starting in that latter case where we need to be communicating through digital means um, and so it's not necessarily that I'm putting it on the internet. It's just having to, to ride on internet infrastructure to do sure. my, my routine communications. And so that then 
I have nothing to hide argument um, starts to come up. Well, like, well, I don't need encryption because I'm just talking about my cat. But right. what is what's what's more at the heart of that 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 privacy need? Um, yeah, yeah. Look, look. Um, I, I have family members who uh, uh, work an in-person job, uh, do not participate in social media, <laughs> do not have. Um, any IP messaging, right? They have, a, they have a mobile phone that they use for, for phone calls and the occasional text message. Uh, their job does not require them to log into anything on a regular basis. And, and cybersecurity is still relevant to them, right? Both to your point about, um, about privacy and, and the simple fact that uh, you don't need to, to participate in an ecosystem to be a record in their database somewhere. Uh, and thinking more about the business models, the business model, business models of attackers uh, identity theft, right? Trading corp- corpuses, corpi, of uh, uh, of PII, of, of personal data. You don't you don't need to be an active participant in this ecosystem to be threatened by it, right? Uh, so so you know the, the concerns apply to everybody. But to your point about uh, about fear mongering, you know there, there's there's an element of of education certainly. Uh, you know I, I don't think you need. Uh, the cops pounding on your door and saying, did you remember to lock your door to, to just learn as you grow up that you generally lock the door when you leave the house. Um, at the same time, uh, it, as I said at the beginning, it's, it's, up to, it's up to us, both as cybersecurity practitioners, call them, call them lock builders, uh, as well as you know, the home builders, the application builders, to make their solutions, to make their products inherently more secure and inherently uh, less attractive to attackers. Um, you know, for, for the last 20 years, the business models of not attackers, but of, of, uh, of the internet have focused on collecting more and more data. And we're starting to reach a point where maybe collecting all that data is a liability and maybe keeping that data is a liability. Uh, and, and maybe a better business model is to, is to purge data and, and not have anything, you know, not, not, not put your crown jewels in the kitchen window that face the street, right? Because you just don't have them. Um, because you know you're you're a little bit more of a minimalist, um, so so I think I think there uh, there are economic considerations, business model considerations for both uh, attackers and attackees, uh, attackers and um, uh, technologists and software developers that, that need to be considered before we even start getting into this whole shift left, build a more secure application, build a more secure house, and then the next layer of the onion, which is you know what what cybersecurity vendors do I do I uh, um, do I hire, you know, what, what solutions do I purchase? How do I configure them? How is my cybersecurity team trained? How do I train my employees to, to be vigilant, right? These, these, are, these are layers of the onion that, that um, are critical, but they could be so much thinner if we just did a better job at the beginning, right? For sure. What, what, so, uh, go ahead, Forrest. Now you, got, you, you have a follow-up on cybersecurity? Yes. After that, um, I, I got a good transition into like okay. And stuff, um, so, so if I, if I'm if I'm running say uh, a medium-sized business or or a corporate internet, and and I mean I thought I would have been doing right by by adopting SolarWinds and and all you know the list goes on um, in terms of tools that seems like everybody's vetted it, seems like it's going well, and in many cases folks have vetted it, but. There's these, you know, the, the zero day attacks and, and other forms that make it so that the world shifts really quickly. Yep. Um, 
is there a, based on your sort of view, you know, as, as an investor in the next generations of these kinds of security measures and, and technologies, is there advice to the, the, the admin, the person who, who is at that, he, he or she has to work with commercial off the shelf technologies, right. um, but they're being faced with sometimes frontier tech kind of challenges. A, a, a microscopic percentage of big breaches are the result of um, incredible technology innovation on the behalf of uh, uh, on the part of the attackers, right? A, a, a microscopic percentage. Uh, <clears throat> keep your software updated, uh, configure it correctly, and enforce good good kind of cyber hygiene, password hygiene, and, and other related topics. And you have eliminated ninety nine percent of the attack surface. Um, but okay, uh, people are still going to buy cybersecurity solutions. So, so there's this concept that's been around for a long time called defense in depth, which uh, and any real cybersecurity practitioners who are watching this are are, are going to laugh for my uh, poor explanation of it. But look, it's it it is it is the layers of the onion, right? It is uh, you know wrapping layers upon layers of uh, application security and web application firewalls and uh, authentication services and. Um, you know, identity services. It's, it's just wrapping things over and over and over again so that if something gets breached, you, you have another layer of security underneath it. But the problem here, as evidenced by the SolarWinds attack, is that every one of these things that you wrap is in, is in and of itself an attack surface. Uh, you know, software is, is not perfect, uh, you know, unless you're, I was going to say, unless you're, you're <laughs> NASA and doing kind of, you know, formal verification. Um, Software Even then, not, it's not perfect. I yeah, I know. That, that was the, that was the, <laughs> you know, generally speaking, software is imperfect. And so, uh, again, you're, you're much, much better off um, not, not getting too creative, uh, exercising really good hygiene, keeping your software updated, uh, and, and then, you know, very slowly and deliberately identifying uh, the specific elements of your business, not, not just your infrastructure, but your business that make you... Um, that make you vulnerable, identi identifying the assets that people are interested in, right? Is it, is it, is it customer data? Is it employee data? Is it payment information? Is it, um, uh, I don't know what else. Those, those are some examples. And, can, and can, I, can I retain less of that? Can I, can I get rid of some of it so that, uh, so that there's, there's less to be exfiltrated? Um, so it sounds uh, like it's okay. it's a bit about it's a bit of a case for um, where we've we've been sort of high on high on the hog, so to say, of of ingesting more and more data, and everybody wants to have their own sort of fiefdom of of data, so we can do big data things on it. But right. really, now it's it's about you know what? Let's be really selective about what we truly need to know um, and Wait, yeah, and look, to work with. That that's that's exactly right. And then and then taking it a step further, um, this whole this whole concept of zero trust, right? It's all about it's all about conditional access. So. Maybe maybe we keep something because we need it, but um, under what circumstances do we need it? What are the processes and procedures for getting access to it? Um, you know, be, being being very very careful and selective about the data that you keep, where you keep it, when you keep it. I mean, again, these aren't even cybersecurity topics. These are these are just like life, right? These are, these are just kind of personal hygiene topics. We we kicked off this discussion talking about how a lot of the physical world is you know now become. Be, being digitized and another interesting um you know set of investments in your portfolio is 3d printed 
Um, so I see you're, you're an investor in Mark Forge, which is a 3D printing company, uh, not too far from me, actually. Um, so that's, you know, that's the digital world becoming physical. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, what makes 3D printing really interesting and how do you think that um, it's going to be used in the future of business, like in the next 10 years? Yeah. Do you want to talk about the cybersecurity of 3D printing? We can, we can talk yeah, about that well, too. Well, actually, that's, that's... yeah, that's a good transition. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, uh, so I've, I've known the Mark Forge team since 2014 or 2015. Um, uh, David and, and Greg are, are two of the smartest people on the planet, as, as far as I'm concerned or aware. Uh, I, I am not a mechanical engineer. It's not a space that I that I knew well and certainly not a space that I continue to know uh, well enough to claim being an expert by any, any stretch of the imagination. So my initial investment uh, was really just a, a bet on the team and, and on the market uh, and on this fundamental belief that um, supply chains would need to get shortened, uh, that just-in-time manufacturing means just-in-time for every component, uh, and, and that um, uh, you know 3D printing in, in its various forms was was inevitable. I, I, I prepared some talking points on my favorite books because, as I said at the beginning, uh, I, I think everybody comes into this industry via sci-fi in some way, shape, or form. So, you know, uh, it was it was Krypton. Uh, Neil Stephenson is or Stevenson, however you say his name. He, he's my, he's my boy, right? So, so Kryptonomicon, uh, you know, is the thing that that kind of created my interest in in cybersecurity, certainly, but startups and venture capital more broadly. Uh, you know, he had a, he had a follow-on work, uh, Diamond Age, which which is the thing that taught me a lot about, uh, uh, I'd say, taught me about three D printing. But it, it exposed me to the, uh, the the fantasy of what could be possible in the in the not too distant future. Um, so yeah, invested in Mark Forge, been been with them uh, on on the ride of our lives for the last six years, and, and of course they're in the process of spacking, which is pretty cool. Um, and then I have another cybersecurity investment uh, company out of Israel called Nanofabrica. Uh, which is doing uh, um, uh, nanoscale 3D printing uh, using a, a twist on a vat polymerization technique. Uh, so, so teeny tiny parts that need to be incredibly accurate. Look for for both Markforge and Nanofabrica, whether whether you're talking about you know a, 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 a shift lever on a motorcycle like the one that Markforge has always had in the front of their office, or you're talking about something that's part of a, a medical device or a component that's going to get embedded. Somewhere in your body, or, or you know, threaded up a vein or an artery somewhere. Uh, you know, historically, the, the process for manufacturing th these things was, I think, the Mark Forge deck used to used to have this picture of this uh, this guy working a CNC machine, and he was you know in his in his 70s wearing the blue overalls, and they always called him Frank, right? The answer was always Frank, right? You've got this custom part, and you send it off, and and that person sends it off, and that person sends it off, and at the end of this chain of of sending off these designs and these parts was Frank in a workshop, like operating this CNC machine. Um, and, and we think about, uh, we think about scale, right? In, in every component of, of the technology industry, it's always about uh, scaling the work that we do. And, and you can't scale manufacturing if you can't digitize the process. Uh, so so a, an overarching theme of all of our investment activity is digital transformation and, and why shouldn't manufacturing be digitally transformed? And digital transformation manufacturing doesn't just mean cooler Kanban boards or touch screens on the line. Like, why can't some of these actual actions be taken by machines? Uh, and why can't these machines be 
um, uh, kind of operate in a recurring fashion, right? Just just like a just like a lambda function, right? Or or you know just like a microservice somewhere. Why why can't manufacturing be be a microservices architecture? Um, so so that's what inspired my interest in the space. Beyond that, it's it's been very kind of team driven, uh, looking for. Uh, looking for net new technologies and the teams that are capable of executing on them, uh, trying to ignore the 3D printing market size. I, I think that's the most common uh, objection we hear to, to investments and say, look, this is not about 3D printing. This is about manufacturing. And what is the market, market size of manufacturing? Well, it's everything, right? Everything that isn't software is, is manufacturing in some way, shape or form. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, looking at the CNC market, looking at the, uh, the EDI market, um, looking at the EDM market, excuse me, um, 3D printing will, will grow the pie, right? Uh, all, all of these are grow the pie technologies. Uh, cybersecurity for 3D printing is a cool topic. Uh, uh, I get yelled at whenever I use this term, but uh, you know, DRM for, for, uh, for designs, right? DRM for CAD models. Mm -hmm. Everybody hates the word DRM, and so they get all touchy when I, when I use the phrase. When I, when, I, when I like hear the pitch, I'm like, oh, got it. So you're building a DRM for, for CAD models. And for the audiences, in case you haven't been, uh, in, uh, digital, digital rights, the, yeah, yeah, digital rights management. We're all we're all old yeah. enough that, that we got we got uh, we, we we dealt with you know ripping DVDs and ripping CDs mm -hmm. and back when Napster was was yeah, cool exactly. and no not, one knew it was wrong. <laughs> not 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 that any of us have ever uh, have ever ripped any content from any source ever. Um, uh, but but you know, <clears throat> trade secrets. Right, are, are easy to protect when your trade secrets are the tooling and the fixtures and the machinery that are in your factory, and the only way to get into your factory is to get a job there or, or you know, steal the key. And by the way, there's a, there's a, a guard in a gray suit walking around at night when the factory's not running. Um, but, but you know, trade secrets kind of go out the window when, when your, uh, your business is a CAD file, and um, all you really need to know is, you know, where's the file and what is the printer that prints it. Uh, does, does that does that immediately uh, eliminate all competitive advantage for some category of manufacturing? You better hope not. Um, uh, you know, national security concerns, right? Uh, a lot of these three D printing companies have have big uh, military and defense customers and contracts uh, because the things that they're making go into other things that we're not supposed to know about, and I don't know about, and that's fine. I don't want to know. Um, so, so how, how do you how do you protect this stuff, right? Uh, it's not just a matter of protecting the file, but but understanding when it's used and how it's used, uh, it, it instrumenting files so that they can communicate with a central service. Um, you know, back to back to my earlier point about what do you keep, right? Should we be keeping all the previous versions? Uh, where do we keep it? Who who has access to it? What can you do with it? Uh, as I said at the beginning, right, the separation between phys physical and digital is shrinking uh, in both directions, and and so cybersecurity applies even to uh, even to the three D printing market. That's that inner inner intersection of the the physical and the, and the the digital is really an interesting point and about the sort of is is my whole business just a CAD file um, and extrapolating that out to on on the, the global and sort of nation state level. You're 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 based and in invest from uh, United Kingdom, right? Uh, do you, work with a lot of sort of companies, you know, spanning the globe and a, and a co company, Microsoft, ultimately that's, that's global. What kind of differences, um, and sort of in, whether it's toward nationalism, uh, sovereignty, et cetera, what kind of differences are you seeing in, in the market and the mentality of the folks that you're working with? 
Um, yeah, interesting question. So, uh, as you as you point out, Microsoft's a global company, and and you know when when we started M12 about five years ago, uh, Satya said to us, Microsoft's a global company. We want you to be a global firm. So it took a while, right? You can't you can't kind of flip a switch and, and go from a three-person team to a 10-person team uh, spread around the globe and, and trust each other and understand each other and be able to do deals together. Uh, but, but we have scaled up over time. So we now have uh, uh, six, five or six investors in, in San Francisco. Um, I moved to the UK about 18 months ago to, to open up our European presence. Um, uh, I've got uh, three colleagues in, in Israel and Tel Aviv and, and one in uh, uh, Bangalore and India. Um, I mean, it's, a, it's an entirely separate topic that we can spend as much time as you want on, but, but this general concept of kind of pre versus post COVID, uh, you know, startup location, um, you know, companies are, companies are global, companies are remote, the Silicon Valley diaspora uh, has really accelerated. Oh, and by the way, you know, as long as we're close enough on time zones, I don't really care where you sit at all. Uh, Kind of lowering the uh, lowering the bar to taking a meeting, and, and hopefully that means that uh, we're all a little bit more inclusive uh, in our investing activity and investing practices. It's yeah, it's a cool topic. Um, in the domains where I spend time, uh, I mean B two B broadly, but but you know cybersecurity and, and infrastructure. Um, <clears throat> let's see. So uh, there's this macro trend of of you know trying to keep keep China quote unquote keep China off the cap table, right? Um, it, it just represents risk to, to entrepreneurs and to founders uh, in terms of uh, where you're able to raise follow-on capital, who's willing to be your customer. You know, you're probably not going to land a, a, a U.S. or a Five Eyes uh, you know, revenue contract if you have too much, quote-unquote, too much China on your cap table. Um, it can become a concern uh, for, for investment rounds. It can become a concern for exits. Uh, I, I am by no stretch of the imagination an, an expert on CFIUS. Uh, nor, nor can anybody uh, who, who's not an attorney, you know, get to a level of, of kind of sophistication and comfort on CFIUS. And so we just simplify. We really have no choice. And we simplify by, by just trying to keep China off the cap table. Um, and, and could you elaborate a, a bit on in terms of uh, why that is of, of the, the keep China off the cap table? It's because I'll say it's, it's not because it's just like a particular particular country that you know, they want just like a, as a newcomer entrance or something it there are more sort of nation state reasons for trying to avoid that kind of um investment right and some sort of historical precedents for being concerned yeah, about I, I i mean look you know you you can't when you're tiny you think geopolitics means nothing to you um when you're larger you know geopolitics are are in, uh, su surprisingly uh, relevant to to the day to day job of a founder and a VC, because you've got to exit somewhere and sometime. Um, somebody has to buy you, or you have to go public. Uh, and and in the meantime, you have to close a bunch of revenue. And and in the meantime, you might be uh, taking out debt or hiring employees. And as you go through all these processes, uh, people want to understand who owns you, who who are the bet, who's on the cap table, who are the beneficiary owners of of the work that you're doing. Um, who, who has control over the business, who has board seats. Uh, you know, Washington is not um, incredibly nuanced, right? They, they, sometimes they, they don't take for granted when we say, oh, they, they own 10%, but they don't have board seats, they don't have information rights, so it's just passive, right? That isn't, that's, not, that's, that's not satisfactory. That's not a satisfactory answer. Um, so sometimes we have to be very careful 
uh, because you know what, what what a shame that you're going out and trying to close a big contract, and the company is unwilling to do business with you based on uh, you know a million dollar investment you took five years ago from one particular party, right? So so you have to be you have to be unbelievably careful careful. Um, you know that that is that is uh, doubly a concern when you're talking about um, sensitive IP, uh, certainly within the cybersecurity realm. Well, really, anything inside of the cybersecurity realm, but, but going a layer deeper, uh, anything that deals in, in uh, cryptography is, is incredibly sensitive, right? Uh, export restrictions, ITAR, right? Um, again, like you know, Washington is not always willing to accept, oh, they're just a passive investor, right? Well, okay, do they get to come to your board meetings? Have you ever forwarded them a, a demo copy of your software? Did you follow, you know, did, did you breach ITAR restrictions by forwarding them a copy of your demo that happens to use some cybersecurity somewhere in it? Uh, did they get a demo of the product in order to, to make the investment? Did you breach ITAR then? It's um, it's terrifying. Uh, you know, a, 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 the tiniest misstep can can really uh, screw up your business. So uh, unfortunate as it may be, and, and I say this as somebody who lived in China for a couple of years and, and studied the language. Um, in in many cases, you just have to keep China off your cap table. So can you talk a little bit about um, just M twelve? Um, as as a whole, what what it's you know what your strategy is, what kind of makes you different from a you know traditional VC. Sure, um, yeah, M twelve. We're five years old. Um, we we launched in twenty sixteen. Uh, <clears throat> any anybody who's spent too much time in the valley uh, has heard and, and probably has rightfully heard to be kind of careful or cautious around uh, corporate investors, corporate venture capital. Uh, the, the argument has always been, uh, you know, their incentives uh, differ from from institutional investors and from those of the entrepreneur. Uh, you know, people come and go, strategies change, the groups get stood up and shut down. And the short answer is I agree with all of that, and it's largely true. Uh, all that said, I have always believed that corporate venture done right should be better, not worse than institutional, because we have more to offer uh, to, to entrepreneurs than just, you know, my, my charming personality in your boardroom. Um, or if you're Andreessen, the, the you know hundred people that, that they have on their uh, platform team. Um, so uh, we we you know uh, uh, drew a lot of lessons from our friends at Google Ventures, GV as as they prefer to be known. Um, the point being, you can build a um, professional institutional grade, uh, financially driven venture firm that also happens to have access to the corporate parent and use that access to drive value, uh, unique differentiated value that no other investor could drive for the portfolio companies. And as a result, make everybody happier, right? You're, you're driving specific value for the entrepreneurs. You're making the rest of the cap table happy. Uh, you know, your, your corporate parent is, is you know, engaging with startups and meeting them earlier than they would otherwise. Uh, and hopefully everybody's making a bunch of money in the process. So, um, so that's how we're structured. That's how we operate. Um, uh, we're about 30 people, uh, 10-ish on the investment team. Uh, we have two platform teams, uh, market development and portfolio development. Uh, portfolio development is all about um, opening doors to Microsoft, right? They, 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 you know, they're not quota carrying. They're not here to shove anything Microsoft down anybody's throat. They're here to uh, uh, pound on doors, grease the skids, and, and try to help our portfolio companies create the relationships that they're looking for with arguably the, the largest and most important B2B software company in the world. Um, uh, market development focuses on helping our portfolio companies engage directly with uh, potential end customers. Often those are, are Microsoft's customers too, uh, but, but trying to go directly to you know, the Fortune 500 or, or the Fortune 450, uh, 
term I invented. It's Fortune 500 minus all the other software companies. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, trying try to help our portfolio companies land land revenue uh, from um, uh, from some of these these other uh, large enterprises. Um, so that's that's what we do. We are we are an early stage B two B investor. We're focused on Series A and B. We invest in in anything B two B where software is the point of leverage. Uh, and then we have this incredibly unique differentiated value add, which is is um, unparalleled access to to Microsoft. So let's dive a little bit on on the personal side that has led you to this this really interesting position. Where sure. I mean, th- this, so I think a lot of folks would be are, are, would be curious as to how did younger Matt get into this opportunity to be able to look across the, across the world for, for some awesome frontier tech. Yeah. So, so, um, uh, I, I started my career as, as a, uh, my, my resume quite literally said for quite a while, a bad software developer, uh, you know, I was, I was you know, <laughs> so, so self-taught. It's good and, to own I, it. You know? Yeah. You know, I, I just, I, I want to make sure nobody quizzes me. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I was I was you know self-taught and, and worked for a systems integrator doing um, uh, CRM systems integration work uh, first first job out of college or, or out of uni as I've learned to say here, um, and uh, and then and then slowly worked my way into the startup world. Uh, spent uh, several years as a very early employee with um, a venture back startup in the automotive space. So this was the the uh, mid two thousands. There were four or five. Automotive startups that raised uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to, to um, build new cars and, and bring them to market. You've heard of one of them. That would be Tesla. <laughs> I did not join that one. Um, I, I joined one of the other ones. Uh, we were trying to build the cheapest car that an American would buy. Uh, you know, four doors, power windows and locks, air conditioning, CD player, automatic transmission, brand new for ten thousand uh, dollars. Incredibly cool company. Incredibly cool story and ambition. Uh, raised about one hundred and ten million dollars in venture capital. Lost all of it. Um, that's, that's a story for another time, but, but suffice it to say, uh, losing $110 million is a great story to tell when you're trying to get into business school. Um, so that's, that's what I did. And, uh, you know, starting my MBA, you know, not knowing the difference between a mutual fund and a hedge fund, not being a finance guy by by any way, uh, by, by, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, I, I love startups. I love tech. I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, found myself in a conversation with a, with a San Francisco based seed fund, um, you know, charmed them through my arcane knowledge of, of, you know, B2B software and SaaS before SaaS was really a word. Um, uh, you know, I I think these days, if you were to go to any of these MBA campuses, the number of people who came from enterprise software, came from B2B software is, is, uh, a, a much larger proportion of the class. Uh, back then, I was I was uh, uh, unique and exotic. <laughs> um, uh, landed in an internship, and, and within about two weeks, decided uh, this is exactly what I want to do. You know, if you're if you're uh, geeky, intellectually curious, and have just a little bit of ADD, um, you know, I, I can't imagine a more fun job. Right, my my job is to get coffee with people smarter than me and ask them questions. Um, and, and you know, you slowly start to figure out your style and your focus areas and the things that that uh, you have an interest in and and hopefully a little bit of domain expertise. And if you don't have the domain expertise, you can build it over time uh, by, by just meeting hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of companies in a, in a mm-hmm. particular domain. Um, and that's that's kind of how I ended up in the industry. Uh, you know, cybersecurity specifically, I, I joined a firm called Trinity in 2012. 
and uh, on my first day or second day, one of the partners said, go, go sit next to that other guy and go build us a cyber practice. Uh, because I think they, they had a sense that this was an important uh, sector uh, mm -hmm. and it wasn't a sector that they'd spent an enormous amount of time, on the, time in in the past. Uh, and, and, you know, how many years is it later? What was that? So about eight years later, uh, I, I've made half a dozen in uh, cybersecurity investments. I've, I've met well over a thousand cybersecurity companies. Uh, I, I, I aggressively stop short of calling myself an expert, but I think I know enough to be dangerous and I know the landscape. Um, uh, and, and, you know, cyber as a, as a, uh, investment sector is the gift that keeps on giving, right? It's, it's the mm -hmm. industry that never goes out of fashion. The problems are never going away. Cybersecurity will never be solved. And, you know, I, I, you could view that as, as a cynical statement, right? Like, I don't want it to be solved so I can keep making money. That, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> um, I'm saying, you know, it is a fundamentally asymmetric problem. Yeah. Uh, and, and as long as that asymmetry exists, um, uh, you know, the, the economic incentives of attackers to get incredibly creative match the economic incentives of defenders to, to find new and new, newer and better uh, creative solutions to, to their attacks. What am I going to do with my bit, my crypto wallets? Then, I mean, how am I going to keep those safe? <laughs> I, I don't. I, no. I, I, I have done one crypto investment. Uh, it's not a space that I feel super comfortable talking about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so when you're when you're meeting these these companies, I mean, you talked about Mark Forge. You already had kind of a relationship with the founders and knew them very well, but. When you when you have that first um, you know that first meeting with founders, what's kind of like the indicator to you that that you're interested in a follow up meeting? Do you get a gut feeling? Is it just they're you know great people? What's you know what's um, what really makes the decision whether you want to go further? Um, I, I have two answers to that question. Uh, you know, one is uh, I, I have decided. So, so one of the biggest things that I've learned through the COVID era has been that we can do our job entirely remotely. I've, I've made two investments now without ever meeting uh, meeting the teams in person. And, and while I do think it's important to eventually meet them, and I, I look forward to going to board meetings again someday soon, uh, and, and building a more personal relationship with these with these executive teams, we were able to do it. Um, and part of what we did was, you know, we did we did a lot more diligence, and and I think our decisions were. Uh, more thesis driven and more data driven and let less gut and heuristic driven and and I am not saying that gut and heuristics aren't important you know venture capital is the art of making decisions in the absence of perfect information so so gut will always play a role uh, but I think that the days of in-person first meetings with entrepreneurs are over uh, I think it's healthier for me I think it's healthier for the ecosystem uh, I think it will hopefully lead to more uh, diverse and inclusive investing so now my approach is, uh, you know, meet everybody remotely at the beginning, uh, you know, do as much diligence as I can up front. And then again, I look forward to eventually meeting people in person again one day and using my, using my gut and using my heuristics to verify my diligence and, and not the other way around. Um, to, the, to the broader question and, and how it relates to, to cybersecurity, uh, certainly being thesis driven, uh, on the one hand, knowing what you're looking for, on the other hand, I, I, I always say, um, it would be a disaster if I knew more about an entrepreneur. I knew more than an entrepreneur about the sector that, that he or she is uh, is, is operating. Um, you know, that's that's not how it should be, right? I'm I'm a generalist, and there are things that I know a lot about. You know, like 
fundraising and you know VC fund operations. Um, but but the specific nuances of, of my portfolio companies businesses uh, should not, is not and should not be one of those spaces. Um, so you know within cybersecurity, I, there are certainly things that I look for. Um, uh, I, I look for data modes, and, and that's I think a topic we should spend another minute or two on. Um, but but taking a step back from there, uh, cyber is a is a um, unique and distinctive technical uh, domain, and uh, you see almost no uh, movement back and forth between kind of traditional software developers and cybersecurity developers. Um, I was trying to think of a good metaphor for that. I don't have one right now. But uh, I, so, so short answer is in, in cyber, I look for a lot of domain expertise uh, and experience in addition to uh, the, the other more general uh, things we look for in any investment in addition to hopefully something that checks a, a particular thesis box that I've been working on or developing. Great. And you said you wanted to touch on data modes. Uh, I think that would be a good time. What, what is a data mode? I've never heard that. So, so yeah, so maybe, maybe I overprepared because um, I was just nervous that, that, you know, a bunch of experts were going to make fun of me after, after you post this. Um, so, so we were talking about asymmetry, right? And, and I, I was saying, you know, my, my philosophy and my approach uh, to making unique and differentiated investments in cybersecurity is to try to do things that, that start to flip that asymmetric equation, right? That, that start to allow for... Um, uh, for alignment and shared scale uh, between large stationary enterprises that, that you know can't disguise their borders or, or their perimeter, right? And they can't disguise their assets. They they are what they are. Um, but we have other advantages, and our advantages are scale, and our advantages are that we're on the right side of the law, um, and our advantages are or should be that we can coordinate with one another. Um, in the past, that's been very difficult. It's been very difficult. Uh, because of you know data management and privacy and and you know data access, so you know tools and techniques, whether whether they're um, you know graph databases or federated learning, uh, are starting to uh, enable um, uh, types of coordination that, that couldn't exist in the past. Uh, and and when that coordination is applied to uh, cyber defense, I, I think it becomes very powerful. Um, you know, we have we have two investments in our portfolio: cybersecurity investments that I describe as a giant graph database upon which they build some cool products. Right. So, so you know, one of that one of those is is SpyCloud, and I, I wanted to make sure I used their language, not mine. So, SpyCloud gives you access to the world's most comprehensive repository of compromised credentials and PII. Right. So, so on the one hand, they're probably the most um, uh, attractive uh, asset for attackers in the universe because they have, I don't know, billions, right? Where's my, where are the notes? Uh, uh, 118 billion recovered breach assets, 23 billion total passwords, right? So when they came that's in- That's quite, quite a nice pot to, to go after. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And, and it's that's, cool. That's like bigger right. than like one pass or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, when they, when they, I assume I can tell this story, you know, when, when they came in and gave a demo to Satya, they, they like paused and was like, so can, can we do the demo? And, and Satya, can we, can we use you? And he said, yes. And, you know, he kind of went into Multigo in the graph database and, you know, pivoted from asset to, you know, from here's his name. So here's where we think his email addresses are. Here's where we think his phone numbers are. Is this your password? Oh, dang. Right. <laughs> um, now, obviously, once you get this enormous corpus of, of data, what do you do with it? You build products, and and uh, the, the easiest to explain product is is um, 
uh, uh, password reuse prevention. Uh, I assume they have, a, they have a better term for it, but essentially safeguarding the identity of employees and users, right? You, you go to reset your password or you're asked to reset your password. It's gotta be this long, it's gotta be this complex, and it can't be you know, a password you've used here before. Oh, and by the way, it can't be a password that you, you or anybody else has used anywhere ever in the history of the internet. That's pretty cool, right? Yeah. That's pretty cool. So, so that's, uh, wow. that's, that's, what, that's one product you can build on, on this data mode, and it's the kind of thing that you can only achieve with, uh, with scale and with coordination, right? Um, uh, I, I promised you metaphors. I do love metaphors. The, the other company that uh, uh, operates in a very similar, uh, similar vein or similar domain is, uh, is called HIAS, H-Y-A-S, HIAS InfoSec. Um, they're all they're they're entirely focused on on adversary infrastructure, right? So the, the command and control infrastructure, the servers, the domains, the IP addresses that attackers use for um, uh, for coordinating their attacks, for operating their botnets, right? So so here's my favorite metaphor. I, I love this one. Um, think of an organization as a prison, right? And think of the cybersecurity team as you know the guards, and and they've got X-rays. And they've got pat downs, and they've got uh, you know bars on the windows, and they 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 scan all the produce that comes into the kitchen area, and you know the the the, the warden is absolutely sure no cell phones have been snuck into my prison, right? We are a self we are a, an illicit cell phone free zone. We have the best security. No way anybody snuck a cell phone in my prison. That's cool, but I'm just going to go check the cell tower across the street from the prison, and I can see eleven SIM cards you know pinging off of it, right? I don't know how they got there. I don't know, you know, who snuck them in, uh, but they're unaccounted for, and they're pinging off this tower, which means they got in, right? Um, so by by uh, instrumenting the infrastructure, right, going directly to the to the the cell phone towers, to the to the infrastructure uh, of the global internet, dumping a bunch of stuff into a giant graph database, and then building um, building products on top of it, uh, you could start to flip the script, right? And and this is another example of of. Uh, of coordination and building these data assets that, that create um, uh, defensive tools and products that, that couldn't have existed in the past. And, and I find those really exciting. So that's, that's the kind of thing I'm looking for. So the, 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 the history of, of security and let's keep it specific in terms of like cybersecurity is, is you got the, the, uh, to me, it's simple. The white hats, the white hats who are looking for making things like as guardians of all that is good and moral and nice, and the black hats who are working at getting getting access to stuff that they shouldn't have. That a locked sure. door is a challenge, and I want to get through that locked door just to see what's there, um, right. and perhaps with nefarious intent. And cybersecurity uh, specifically is, uh, I, I see it as. Um, where it's always at the interface of where where there's industries changing. For example, as more electronics and you know specifically computers started to get on board, like a Jeep Cherokee, um, that started to cause the to be hot cars to be hackable, which was right. you know prior was like an unthinkable concept. And then the, uh, at at DEFCON, the U.S. Air Force was you know had recently held a, a Hackasat Hackasat hacking satellite competition, right. and now. Um, I'm not saying that those those issues are, are still not, are, are resolved. They're they're still you know works in progress. But now we have the emergence of potentially uh, accessible quantum computing right. that's coming online. Some evidence that it's it's that this could work, um, and so that puts a threat uh, to. Uh, to the to the ability for us to with our usage of algorithms to encrypt data and storing it. Um, and if if I if I want to be mean evil, I could 
grab any, any encrypted information I can find and sit on it for for one to one year or one decade, whatever it takes for me to get access to a quantum computer and yep. then see what was what was discussed. Yep. Could you elaborate on this 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 need for post quantum security? Yeah, I, I mean you you. <laughs> You, you already nailed the thesis, right? So, so you know, pe- pe- which is fine. Uh, you know, pe- people talk about uh, talk about quantum as as you know something in the future and something for us to develop, and then they talk about how you know quantum will break all encryption, and that means we'll need new encryption. And so, people are building the computers and they're building the encryption for the computers uh, simultaneously, and they think that's all good as long as those two things arrive, you know, within a few months of each other, everything's fine. But to your point, um, the, the the scariest part about um, uh, quantum computer development is the fact that there is plenty of encrypted data sitting out there that people have saved or, or, or retained for a very long time uh, that will suddenly be uh, uh, vulnerable. And certainly some of it um, is no longer relevant, but some of it is, right? Um, I promised I wouldn't talk about blockchain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so you know, the, the, the one area where we've spent a lot of time recently is, is in quantum key distribution. Um, so, so this long-term vision of the quantum internet, which is, you know, unbreakable point-to-point communication where you, you know with absolute certainty whether, uh, whether a transaction, a packet, a, some, some element of communication has been uh, intercepted, intercepted or, or sniffed or spoofed, uh, you know, is, is, a, is a beautiful vision. But um, there are challenges in in distributing entanglement, right? And in, in you know, so so you know, quantum computers operate on this concept of entanglement, and uh, entanglement has has um, uh, range concerns and range considerations. So uh, if you if you agree with the fundamental premise, the beginning premise that we need to get uh, kind of quantum resistant uh, encryption set up before the quantum internet. Um, two, two, two things are playing out. One is, is we need kind of quantum safe or post-quantum algorithms. Um, uh, and the other thing is that we need to solve for this, this issue of quantum key distribution, right? Making sure that, that, um, uh, that the keys themselves aren't intercepted and kept and sniffed. Um, uh, yeah. So, so, you know, these are, these are incredibly cool topics. I am far from an expert, uh, I, I'm incredibly uh, blessed to work with my colleague Samir uh, Samir Kumar, who's our our resident expert on the topic and is on the board of PsyQuantum. Um, but uh, but it's cool, and we have we have a lot of fun riffing on on the uh, uh, the tangents between uh, between quantum and cyber. Wow, that's, that's definitely a pretty pretty extreme nerd level discussion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're getting <laughs> sci-fi pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's fun stuff. <laughs> I think uh, we want to give you an opportunity to, you know, make whatever pitch you want uh, for our <laughs> audience, um, whether, you know, it's, it's pitching M12 or just the, the importance of cybersecurity in your own <laughs> life. But uh, we just want to give you that last moment uh, to have the last word. Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll go back to what we talked about at the beginning, which is, is uh, you know, investing in optimism. And, and this is not me bragging, saying I have the best job in the world, but I, I really do love my job, my job. Is is to um, uh, spend my days over the horizon and see what I can see, see what small uh, contribution I can make to to bring those things closer to reality and closer to home. Um, you know, in, in your prep, you, you said why is this important and and who is it important to? Uh, you know, it's it's important to three people, right? It's important to me personally uh, because it's fun um, and and I feel good about what I do every day. 
um, I, 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 hopefully I'm doing well and doing good by, by the people who entrust me with their capital and entrust me with their vision and their stories. Uh, and so hopefully I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm making money for my LPs and also helping these entrepreneurs achieve their dreams and, and giving them the, uh, the, the capital and the resources they need to be successful. Um, look, I, 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 I invest in companies that matter. I, I invest in companies that are doing cool things uh, that aren't cool for their own sake, but are, are fundamentally important to the, the future of our species uh, and the future of our society. Um, you know, I, I want to be solving, I, I want to be investing in companies that are solving big problems, right? Um, I'll, I'll throw out one other random one. It, it has nothing to do with cybersecurity, but uh, I, I led the Series A in a company called Nautilus Labs in New York, uh, which is, is voyage optimization, so speed and route optimization for the global shipping industry. The global shipping industry, most people know, uh, is, is the one of the largest polluters in the world. Uh, they consume an enormous amount of a very, um, uh, 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 you know, a fuel that, that emits a lot of greenhouse gases. Um, and, and it's a particularly kind of uh, tech-averse uh, industry or, or legacy industry. Um, introducing software, you know, very, very basic optimization and analytics, uh, the, the kinds of things that, that, you know, every sophisticated software business does every single day inside their application performance monitoring solution, right? We can do that for ships. And, and we can tell captains and, and ship owners and operators, don't go this way at six knots, go that way at seven knots. You'll still arrive at your destination, or maybe I should flip the speed. You'll, you'll still arrive at your destination on time. You'll consume less fuel doing it. Uh, <clears throat> and by the way, when you get there, fill up at this place, not at that place. And I know the maintenance log says you don't need to scrub the hull for another two months, but uh, according to our data, uh, you're moving a little bit slower than we expected you to, and that's probably due to the fact that you were hanging out in the Gulf of Mexico for three weeks when the water was two and a half degrees warmer than we normally expected it to be. And so there's some, so we, we, we anticipate there's some unnatural growth on the ship and that's slowing things down. Oh, and by the way, uh, when you go bring the ship in to get scrubbed, take it to this vendor, not that, that vendor, because according to our data, uh, you know, the, the ships perform this, this percentage better when they use that particular vendor to solve these problems. Um, incremental, incremental stuff can, can have an unbelievably enormous uh, impact on, uh, on businesses and on carbon emissions and, and on the world that we live in. Uh, and I think that's cool. And that makes me happy. I'm Matt. I'm a managing director at M12. Stay tough. Well, thanks for tuning in to Tough Tech Today. We've just kicked off a brand new season, which means we'll have another episode in only two weeks. In this episode, we'll be talking with Virginia Berger. She is the co-founder of New Equilibrium Biosciences. Please, if you enjoyed the show, spread the word. The best thing you can do on YouTube is leave a like, subscribe, and of course, leave a comment. We love interacting with our viewers. And if you're on the podcast, leave us a five-star review and share with a friend. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.